Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good lad. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. You're very welcome to Second Captains at the Irish Times as we build up to Ireland's penultimate Six Nations match this year against Italy. Brian O'Driscoll's last home game, you may not have heard. What? Yeah, the team well, he's, is, he's retiring. <laughs> he's, he's retiring, yeah. The team has been named today and one element of the debate around team selection in Irish rugby for as far back as I can remember is no matter who's picked, the arguments among supporters just break down along provincial lines. So Ronald O'Gara gets picked ahead of Johnny Sexton. Disgraceful anti-Leinster bias there. Keith Gleeson in ahead of David Wallace. Well, that's the influence of the Dublin-based media. As um, it was, is yeah. and ever shall be. This sort of talk is usually totally overblown and can actually get fairly tiresome. But I have to say, as a Munster fan looking at the 23 pick for Saturday, I'll be doing the math on it. Mm. I'll be getting the abacus out. Uh, Calculator. (laughs) Calculator would do the job just fine. It would not escape my attention that there are two Munster players and 16 Leinster players. I'm counting Johnny Sexton as a Leinster player for the purposes of this polemic. (laughs) Well, yeah, like I'm not entirely sure you should be doing that. Why? Well, 15 then. Forget about yeah, Johnny Yeah, okay, 50. I mean, I think Still, the al- point, almost eight times as the many point, Leinster players. The, the point is, is well made, regardless of whether Johnny Sexton is a Leinster player or not. I'm sticking up for my Munster brethren. We've got uh, mm. two Leinster men and a Connacht man in studio here. I just, uh, right now, we're not represented by Munster. Um, mm. so it's like true. To. You know, one well, my, my dad's from Munster. Perfect. Will that do you? Shame then I, I reckon Leinster are seven and a half times a better team than Munster anyway, so <laughs> me and Joe Schmidt, that's what we reckon. Shane Horgan and Bernard Jackman are going to be in studio shortly on all of that. And also Carlo Del Fab, a former Italian international on the surprising news from their camp, Sergio Parise will be missing, which is uh, not great news from, from the point of view of anyone watching the game, but uh, probably is quite good news in terms of Ireland trying to score as many points as possible. Mm. And win the match. Well, I think we can just now. Now that we've we've got the Italian team, we've got that news. We can basically saunter up to the Aviva, sit back, relax, and let the avalanche of tries begin. We're going to be talking office politics with the US Murph again. Yeah, sounds kind of boring. Well, not when Murph explains. I don't think it. office politics are boring. Do you not? Oh, sounds kind of exciting. Well, Murph is going to explain <laughs> a little bit more. I mean, well, I mean, everyone, everyone at some stage or another has fallen foul of office politics, and uh, basically, it, it's it's. Where does Jim Harbaugh stand in the San Francisco 49ers 
organization. Can he walk around? I mean, he's the head coach. So you would think that he walks around. He's, you know, top of the tree, cock of the walk, the big cheese. Yeah. Um, but it turns out he doesn't have quite enough power, as far as Jim Harbaugh is concerned. He gets to cook the meal, but someone else buys the ingredients, Ken. Uh, it's an argument that's uh, been coming into the uh, English well, Premier League with greater and greater it regularity. Has actually, yeah, the idea um, that the coach doesn't actually get to buy the players in the traditional way that the manager. Yeah, the, Jamie Oliver buys all his own ingredients. He well, chooses, he chooses the ingredients. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't have to go out to the shop. He doesn't schlep out to the shop himself. But, I mean, the person that does the schlepping is, has been given very strict instructions. Sure, he gives broad guidelines as to what kind of stuff he wants. And, uh, and his, the people who he trusts, people who he's been working with for a long time, they go out and do their job, which is to get the best possible ingredients that well, are needed. It's, it's, it, well, it just depends, that's, really, doesn't That's it? what you call a working, a proper professional working relationship between people who trust each other and are good at their jobs. Mm. You know, not people who are always trying to peek into what the other person is doing. Not people who are paranoid about their own mm. position. Paranoid to, about what kind of Trying to consolidate like. their own uh, power base mm. um, and push others to the periphery in an attempt to, to jealously guard, you know, because essentially they're, they're insecure at the bottom. Yeah. Well, no, I, I basically the, the piece we're going to be talking to U.S. Murph about, uh, dragging us, kicking and screaming back to the point here, is, uh, you know, basically Damien Kamali and what the hell is he doing? Why are we paying Damien Kamali so much money? Jim Harbaugh has got a problem with his Damien There are Kamali, a lot of Damien Kamali type figures in yes. American sports. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But Bernard Jackman and Shane Horgan have just landed into studio. Guys, thanks for coming in. No worries. Welcome. Shane, you're straight from Carton House. Are you, um, are you bringing good vibes back with you? Well, for all the vibes I picked up, um, certainly it's, it's such a great facility out there for them. It's one thing I noticed, and it's, it's, it's a big change since my time. Although we always, you know, we stayed in nice hotels and it was lovely, but our actual training facilities weren't good enough. Um, we often trained on pitches that were you'd feel very leggy by the end of the week, and uh, I think it had an effect on on the team certainly. And, and you know, we we mentioned it, and a member senior players bringing it up, and they just didn't have a, a quality pitch to train at that time that was easily accessible. And they've got two brilliant pitches down there, top of the ground. And, uh, you know, you, you don't have any excuse. You know, you don't. And that's always nice. You don't want to have anything nagging in the back of your, your uh, head. You know, it's often enough going into big games in Six Nations. You're like, you're feeling a little bit of a twinge in your hammy. <laughs> or you're trying to, you're almost making an excuse for yourself. And you don't want to feel leggy. And they don't, they won't as a result of, of training down in that park. The confidence levels at this stage, can you, do you need to be winning matches to feel confident or can you can you feel good about yourselves can there be a good vibe there a good atmosphere there just by the progress that they've made so there's a misconception that um, confidence is built up on a game to game basis and if you win a game then you've got great confidence in the squad and this player is a confidence player so if he has a good game then he's got a confidence and that's going to continue on and confidence doesn't exist like that and, and, and you know, long term team building team strength can't rely on that your confidence comes from um, having a coach you trust, having a game plan you trust, practicing your skills every single day, and then implementing those skills um, on the pitch. And and I remember uh, there's been an occasion where it I've been in sides and it looked like everything is going perfect, and it hasn't been, and there's fundamental issues. And I remember there's also times, and Bernard will tell you this because we were in the same team, that things have looked terrible from the outside, but actually been really good. And I always go back to the the Leinster team uh, before we won the Heineken Cup in '09. Mm-hmm. Do you remember Christmas that year? We'd we'd, we'd been beaten by I think Castro away. We were getting absolutely flogged 
outside our immediate circle. You know, we were people were going crazy about how bad it was. It must be a terrible ship. Nobody's happy. And it was a really happy, confident ship. And we were, we thought we were very close to getting things right. And eventually it did turn around. But confidence builds over a long t- time. So I think to, to apply that to this Irish team, I think there's a lot, a lot of that confidence was already there from individuals. And now you add Joe Smith into it and you add the implementation of the processes that they, they've tried, I think, yeah, they are a confident side. Is that the sense you get, Brendan? Yeah, I'd, I'd agree massively. I think that when players review a match and that they might have luckily won, um, you know, the review the review shows the weaknesses that were there. And I think when Ireland, when they review the performances at the moment, they're going to be getting really good detail in terms of feedback of what they need to do better. The preparation is obviously very, very good. And they they understand that they're starting off a journey, you know, under under a new 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 management. Um, I thought there was a lot of positives from the, from the performance against Twickenham. And also, the most important thing is they'll have identified areas that they could have done better, which would have actually won them the game. You know, and that's what you want. You want to believe rugby players and all sports people are eternal optimists. And once someone gives them key points that they can actually believe that it will make them better, you know, you, you're back on track and, and you go the following week. And wins, wins aren't. It's a, it's a as Shane said it's um, it's a bit of a old wives' tale that you know a run of five wins is going to make you feel really good about yourself. It's actually believing in what you're trying to do and where you're trying to get to. And certainly in 2009, we we were we were very happy and we believed we were getting on track. And even when we beat Harlequins six uh, five, you know, and a lot of people said it was a disaster result, but we felt that we were making improvement because we were getting a bit of a I suppose a, an inner steel about us. And it depends. Every team is looking for something different, but when you're on, once you're on the right track to get that, I think um, guys guys believe in, and and very happy. We'll have a chat about the team selection. Just one change to the. St- Starting 15, it's Ian Henderson in for Peter O'Mahony, uh, who's out injured, uh, well, precaution in the sense that he probably could have played if this had been the France game. But we'll hear from Joe Schmidt talking today. He was asked, was he tempted to make any more changes than that? We think that there's some players out there who've really earned an opportunity. Um, and we're trying to balance that off with the continuity that we had, plus a number of those players had game time last week and, and the players who were in the starting 15 didn't have game time apart from Mike Ross uh, last weekend. So they've already missed one weekend. If if they miss two weekends, that probably isn't ideal going into the French match. It also is probably reflects the respect we have for Italy. How does that reasoning sound to you, Brent? Yeah, I think before the competition started, he, he felt, and he, I mean, he speculated he'd like to maybe start 21 players. I think uh, it'll be 18 this weekend. And you imagine unless there's injuries, um, there won't be any more. This is very much his, his first choice, um, 15. But I suppose it's, it's a testament to the fact that we've had a really good start. We, our points difference is very good, and there's a championship on the line. And um, Certainly before the competition, I would have thought, OK, it'd be great to have a look at some guys. But Six Nations isn't really really a time for, for gambling and and. The, the benefit we would have from winning a championship, I think, would far supersede um, two or three more guys getting under 60 minutes of game time. And we have Argentina, and we have November internationals um, to give guys opportunities, but there's a, there's a valuable carrot to be won, uh, won there. And I think, that, I think that that's what's actually uh, fed into it. And also the guys have done well. I mean, the guys who've got the jersey and opportunities, guys at Trimble, uh, Dave Carney, for example, who mightn't have been your, your stars going into the competition, have done everything Joe's asked to them. So um, he's rewarding that, and I think it's positive. Yeah, they have done really well. And I think, I, I never buy this um, idea that you you want to try players out in the Six Nations. The Six Nations is a competition to win. And that's, you know, primarily has to be your focus. Now, to win that competition, you need to use a number of group, a, a wider group of players. You can't just say, I've got 15, and this is it, they're going to win me the competition. So, inevitably you're going to utilise more players but you, I don't think in a Six Nations unless you know in a crazy circumstance where maybe you know you've lost, a, lost three games you're out of it 
then you have an opportunity. There's nothing to play for. But while there's still something to play for, and here there's a massive amount to play for the championship, um, you don't pick players because you think they'll be good in the future. No, but in a game like, in, in, in a call, for example, like Jonathan Sexton, who has been struggling, there's concerns about how his body is holding up to the rigors playing in France. He had the thumb injury, missed the last game for Racing Metro. Is this not the time to just give him a rest, get him 100% right for France, give him a nice break of a couple of weeks in a season and bring in Paddy Jackson? Or does it come back to the idea that we spoke a bit about last week that Sexton is so vital to what Schmidt's trying to do that he won't actually fully trust uh, Jackson with well, a start? I don't think it's even just a case of not fully trusting Jackson. It's, is Sexton available? Can he play? And if he can, then he should play because, you know, maybe... People outside the Irish camp look on the Six Nations, look on Italy as a, as a gimme of a, of a game. It's not. And they won't be disrespecting Italy in the camp. I've just come back from, from Carton House talking to Brian with Driscoll, and he's, he definitively wouldn't, as much as I pressed him, he wouldn't look past the Italian game. But the coach has to, if, if the coach wants to win a tournament, does he not have to look at the two games left no, as, a, as a whole? And he does. And the, what is the best way to get the best result out of those two games? It's Johnny Sexton. He'll be assessed. Listen, if there's a risk of Johnny Sexton... Um, breaking down and they won't want him to play because you're right he'll want him to play the two games but if he, he's trying to get the most points um, in these two games and realistically you don't go to France you don't go to Paris trying to put up a score if they win by one point in Paris they'll have done their job so they, they need points and the best way to get points this week is by having Johnny Sexton in the team and I think as a result of that you have to pick him Looking at the lineup here 23 players 23 man squad 15 of whom are Leinster players 16 if you want to include Johnny Sexton technically um, not a Leinster player at the moment if you were one of the Munster players not picked for this would you be looking at this thinking you know it's fair enough maybe he's going to trust the Leinster guys a little bit more for the time being but it seems insane at a point in their development when the three provinces three main provinces are at a reasonably similar level that you've only got two Munster players out of the 23 and 16 Leinster or certainly 15 Leinster but yeah it's a, it's a massive uh, massive figure to have and I think there is a case that Joe has gone with the guys that, that he, he knows best and he can trust and are going to go in go into the system I suppose I think Dunica Ryan probably feel a little bit hard done by or Mike McCarthy even another Leinster player that, that Ruddock has got in ahead of him because um, he hasn't played a huge amount of rugby at, at second row I thought Tommy O'Donnell was unfortunate to lose out to, to Jordy Murphy, you know, when he did. Um, so there is there is definitely cases. Uh, but having said that, the performances have been rock solid, um, and you know the results have been pretty pretty decent. What so, I'm talking about, and maybe this ties in, Shane. Maybe you'll make the point again about how I'm, I'm possibly looking past the Six Nations a bit too much. But if you're trying to build something long term, you're trying to get the Munster players on board. You're the Leinster. You're known as a Leinster coach, and you're picking very few of them. Is that not a problem? Well, if you're picking a lot of Leinster players and they were losing games, then you've got an issue. If you're picking a lot of Leinster players and they're winning, um, I think that's not an issue. And I think what will happen is that, and I think it's already happening, that I, I haven't heard an ounce of ill will towards Joe's selection policy or what he's trying to implement. And that's unusual because there normally is something. What I think you'll see is players being advised what specific elements of the game they need to get better at by Joe because he's very specific in what he wants you to do and the type of rugby he wants you to play and then he demands you do it but what you will see and you can see that with Andrew Trimble's selection and you see it with Dave Carney's selection you see it with Devin Toner's selection Ian Henderson as well that if you do what I ask you to do I'm going to pick you 
And that is what, that is the main thing players Seems want. Seems to be the biggest thing in Joe Schmidt's world, certainly at the moment, given yeah, the time he has with the Irish team. I think Shane's right. I mean, it'd be natural for guys who are, who are left out to maybe crib a bit, and we've often seen it. Um, but there hasn't been any of that because Joe and, and his management have communicated with those, what, those guys unbelievably well. They've given them exactly what they need to do um, to get back in the picture. And obviously, it's been hard for them, you know, with, with some Rabo games midweek and stuff, or mid-Six Nations break, to maybe prove that they've done enough to, to change his mind. But there will be opportunities. And this is... Joe's what signed to World Cup whatever this is a long term process this isn't just 4 or 5 caps you know this is to be good enough to get into this team to win 25 caps and to win something for your country so and I think you said what's making the difference is the fact that guys are being told exactly what to do even some stuff I've heard back they're being shocked by the level of detail they're getting in terms of you know when when their out half is kicking a penalty to touch where they should be standing where they should be watching for you know stuff that that sometimes you don't get pulled up on but as a coach do you not have to give the non-Lencer players a chance Is, is it a bit unfair in some of the other guys that they they, they might be looking in and saying I'm every bit as good as Dave Carney I'm every bit as good as whoever it might be in that uh, Irish team is it a little bit I don't know is there, am I barking up the wrong tree here no, but I think it's a little bit unfair on some of the other well, listen, I think Jordy Murphy's he's burst on the scene probably again, um, this season being very very impressive he, he offers a little bit more versatility than Tommy O'Donnell so I suppose that ticks that box um, and again Ruddock has, has been impressive lately maybe he feels he knows enough about Mike McCarthy and, and Dunnick Ryan and Dunnick Ryan maybe you know a little bit short of, of, of game time he's come back from injury Redden is obviously a guy you know he's often rotated Redden and Boss when they played for Leinster and Redden's a guy he likes to use to pick up the, the tempo um, McFadden is, is ideal for that back Back uh, utility back position. So there is, listen, there's no one in there who isn't good enough to play. And, and it looks from the outside that there's a huge amount of Leinster players. But as Shane said, they've all been taking their opportunities and, and the performances and results have been pretty decent. So I think over time you'll see the Munster guys coming into the picture and getting their chance. I think as well it's important to move away from that idea of we're picking a guy now, he's got a game, and let's see what he can do. And if he doesn't perform, brilliantly or outstandingly in that first game then he's gone I think you know what we're seeing here is a process of an entire Six Nations where people are being given an opportunity I think you're finding out things as well that you didn't know about players I certainly am you're, like you're finding out more about I think Andrew Trimble looks more comfortable on the wing than he has done at every, any time since he played um, for Ireland first because I think he probably n- knows that there's a coach that's got confidence in him you know Dave Carney again you know, you've seen he hasn't played, you know, his first cap this year. So you've seen him now play a number of games together. And the more you play the, and the more comfortable you are and the more you play in a settled side, the better you can perform. Is that a different approach, though, than what Joe took with Leinster? Is it the case that he's looking at this and he, we, we talked months ago about the challenges he'd face as an international coach. And the big one is not that much time with the players and having to have a big trust in the ones who are in there. Is that is that the, this the manifestation of that, that he's being quite loyal to the guys that he knows would it have been a bit different at club level I don't know if it's about loyalty I really don't I think it's about pragmatism and uh, who he thinks is going to win in the game and I think you, you have to you have to think about that you know primarily if you're a coach that has to be first up it's not like loyal, loyalty loyalty is um, being honest to players and picking them if they're playing well enough and telling them what to do, telling them how to get in the team, right? That's what loyalty is. Loyalty isn't sticking with someone because you know them or sticking with them um, because they played well for you, you know, 20 games ago. And and I don't think that, like under Joe, we we saw him for three seasons with Leinster and Leinster were were in, uh, you know, various amount of finals. It was 34, 35 games we were based on over the course of a season. All we've really seen with Joe uh, up to now is three games in November and and this is going to be our fourth. So it's not really a long enough... um, 
period of, of study to say he hasn't been willing to change change his players around. I mean, it's very very short time. The frame. sample the sample group is tiny. Yeah, yeah, the sample our sample group is tinier. And I think I I think we're going to see a lot more. Um, you know, uh, a lot more uh, monster players involved. Actually, a much uh, a better mix. Yeah. You know, we've got a we've got a perfect tour to South America, to Argentina um, uh, this year, this summer. Got to run into uh, autumn internationals, which will be you know be very important to win the games, but also important to see where we are going into the World Cup and the Six Nations before. So I think you're going to see that mix change a lot. Well, Tommy Bow is one player who a lot of us thought might. Get back in. He's only played a half of rugby. Really, he played for Ulster. Came off a half time. He was brought into the training, uh, into the Irish training camp, quite late. This is what Schmidt had to say about him today. Um, you know, if we if we got into trouble, um, it was really just to get Tommy back involved. He obviously had the three test matches in November, so he he, he was very quickly up to speed again. Uh, he had no ill effects from the training with us. Uh, he did have uh, a few. A few days off because he tightened a bit in the Ulster game uh, last Friday. So, on the basis of that, we we certainly want to keep him involved in the in the wider group. And if we come to next Monday and and, and we feel that uh, we need Tommy to add some more value or to cover someone who might be in doubt then it's great that we had him in today. I know most players wouldn't be expected to come back into a team after a half of rugby, but just the fact that it's Tommy Bow, are you a bit surprised that he's not in there? Um, I think it was quite instructive what Joe mentioned there about him tightening up a little bit. He only played 40, he tightened up a little bit, and the last thing he wanted to do is have a winger... Um, tighten up after 20 minutes of a game and he did go, go on off. to say just for brevity purposes didn't play more of the clip he did go on to say that he trained perfectly well so he, he looked looked good in training looked yeah good. but it's still it's, it's different you know. and that call probably had to be made early in the week we saw that from some of Joe's earlier calls that I'd say that call was probably made you know, well, it was made on Sunday wasn't it when he wasn't picked on the team so it was immediately after the, uh, the Ulster game um, so there's, there's, a, there's a rationale behind that if he hadn't tightened up I think Tommy Bow is one of the very, very few players in the Irish squad that you go, he goes in anyway. Mm. Because he looked unbelievably sharp at the weekend. He looked rapid. His work rate was, was incredible. His touches, his contributions. He had so many contributions in that 40 minutes and positive contributions. And also, he is so selfish of a rugby player. And I mean that in, in, in the nicest possible way. Because he demands the ball. He demands, he constantly wants to be involved in, in, in the moves. He, wants the, to, he wants, his, wants the touches. He wants to influence the game. And that's the one thing that any winger, I think, can learn from. Where they go, if you're not vocal, if you don't want the ball, sometimes games can pass you by. And I remember speaking to a young Leinster player about this a while ago, that you have to be involved from the, from the start of the week in how the training is going and how, what moves are picked. Otherwise, it might bypass you completely. Um, Involved in actually helping to formulate those moves? Yeah, well, you see the moves. Okay, well, you know, how am I, what's my contribution in in this move? And also coming up with ideas. Because, you know, Bert, at the moment, it's it's not just a coach going, this is what we need to do to beat this team. Like, the coach will say, okay, give me your ideas. You've done your analysis. I've told you to do your analysis. Now, what have you you seen? And if you're a winger, if you've done your analysis correctly, you'll see a role for you to break down a defence somehow. Mm. And that's what you should be throwing into the mix. And Tommy does that. Yeah, Tommy's... Tommy's incredible at that and uh, his ability to spot an opportunity for himself you know from from obviously studying the opposition but also then to go in and affect that and, and be very very dynamic uh, I, I would agree with Shane I think that if he hadn't pulled up if this was I suppose 40 minutes is very, is very little but I, I think he's a, certainly a guy from outside the group that you say could add to this team Still in the running maybe for the France game? 
Possibly it holds. Yeah, I, I think so. It's difficult. Um, it's difficult. It's difficult. But I think, I think it could be. Yeah, for sure. Listen, if Joe believes he's going to help him win the game against France, he'll pick him. Um, but he is a guy who will definitely add to this group for sure. I'll just hold you there, lads, because you are joined now, I'm delighted to say, by a man capped more than 50 times for Italy, Carlo Del Fava, is ready to talk about the selection of the Italian team and their, their chances. Carlo, thanks very much for talking to us, first of all. Oh, no, no problem. Sergio Parise is the big news. He's been rested or been left out of the match as something of a precaution, but probably bad news for the occasion and for the Irish fans even, uh, denied the chance to see such a great player. Is Parise's absence likely to um, maybe take a lot of the belief away from the Italian side? Yeah, oh, and I think obviously with him um, with him not playing um, this weekend, it's, it's due actually to, uh, to a calf injury that he sustained the, the dying minutes of the Scotland game. Um, so I think it's more of a precaution and just to look after him more than uh, more than a serious injury that he's that he's been left out. So, um, but I mean, is a massive massive loss to the team. I mean, his his motivational work on the field, um, preparation, preparing the team before the game, um, just, just the way he plays and just having him close to the team is really really crucial. Um, so to have him not there for for this game, especially when you've got such a massive challenge on your hand, is, is going to be um, it's a massive thing. Yeah. Just watching him from outside, he seems to be the kind of player that does the work of two or three men on the field. <laughs> yeah, he does. The thing is, he, he sort of also changed his game a bit. As in, he, the re, of, more, of, of recent times, he's, he's actually got a lot closer to the contact um, contact areas in defence, especially. Um, he. Before he used to be a lot further back in deep field, fielding those fielding those deeper kicks and running it back, and more involved in the counter attack. Whereas now he's more in the close quarters, which uh, which I think is a good thing. And and it um, with the more expansive game that Italy are trying to play, it allows him to be a lot closer to um, to the action and let um, let the other players that are that are given that ambition to run to, to actually do that work for him. Shane, so, I said, um, yeah, I said Shane, it's bad for the occasion, but it's pretty good for the Ireland team that there's no Parise in there. Uh, it is. I'm interested, in Carlo, who's going to step up into that into that role because um, he he is all encompassing. You know, he's the leading carrier. He's the you know takes the restart. Um, he drives the team. Big tackler. If anyone's going to make a break or an offload, it's really going to be him. Um, very dynamic off the off the back of that scrum. So it's almost you know there's three or four roles that need to be filled, and that was the one individual doing it. I wonder. I'm looking around the team. I'm not sure if there's anyone who can step up in, into a number of those. I know I've got I've got my head in my hand as I'm looking at the team sheet now, and I've got on the right hand side I've got the Irish team, and I'm just looking through it, and it's just it's a monumental challenge that they have on their hands, especially when you're moving um, Barbieri to to eight. Um, he's a completely different player. He's more of actually he's more of a seven than an eight in anything, um, but I think that's due to the fact that they've got so many injuries in the loose forwards. Zani's out, so you lose a lineout option and a good ball carrier. Um, Bergamasco's out injured too. Uh, Minto's also injured. So you've got, you got pretty much just five loose fours that are out injured at the moment. So to fill that role is just, it's going to be unreal. Portolami comes in to take the captaincy um, from the second row and he's an immensely experienced captain too. Um, so I think that the guys have really got to just step up to the challenge at hand and they've got to take it head on and just play with absolutely everything that they've got and not make any mistakes to allow Ireland to get any inroads. You mentioned an expansive game plan earlier on, Carlo. Is that something that Italy will still be able to execute? Is that what they need to be able to do? We know about the traditional strengths of the Italian team, but maybe the, the Irish pack should be able to stand up quite well to the, Irish, to the Italian pack this time around. Do Italy need to bring a little bit more to the table? 
think they, for anything for this game especially, they need to bring a lot more control into the game. Um, from the two tries that they've actually leaked um, against Scotland were because they exited poorly. Um, the box kick wasn't set up to kick, and they had two charges from, from Scotland's side coming in on both sides on the number nine, and he never had any protection, turned the ball over, next thing three passes down the line, and you've got a try scored in, in your own 22. So, and I think that's one of the reasons why he's actually enforced the changes at nine and ten to give these new guys a bit of a chance. So with those new combinations coming in, especially with 8, 9, and 10, they really have to solidly control the game and know exactly what they're doing in each specific area of the game. Okay, Carlo Del Faba, listen, great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Brilliant, thanks, Don. None of that sounds great from uh, an Italian point of view, from Carlo's point of view, but they did beat us last year, Bernard. It's probably worth remembering. Is that game... Did that just exist in such a different world almost with the ridiculous injuries that we had by that stage? The players maybe uh, not doing, certainly not carrying out Declan Kinney's game plan by that point. Is it just a to- is it even worth talking about that game? I don't think it's worth talking about, to be even honest. Even though it was only 12 months Yeah, ago. I don't think so. I think um, it's a vastly different uh, squad, a vastly different mindset. Um, and there's a, there's a real buzz about, about this Irish team. And... You know, Italy. Sometimes your your first uh, your your initial season under under a coach like Jack Brunel, um, there's a bit of real good feel good factor, and they did try and change the way they they played. They're playing with a lot more weight, and they, and particularly at home, they're a completely different animal as well. Um, their way record in the Six Nations is is uh, is very very poor, and you know I, I would have I would respect Italy but I think this Irish team is really ready to go after them and, and to put in a really good attacking performance mm. and I think Ireland are a lot fitter fitter than them I think we can play at a higher tempo and I think tactically and technically at the moment you know we're right up there I think that's what kept us in the game against England because I think England are further along in their development England are probably better athletes but our our ability to, to operate in a high level technically and tactically made us very very competitive and against the Italians you know you implement that game plan um, they'll struggle with that to be honest I don't, I don't think Italy are as good as they were last year either um, their defensive system last year I thought was really good you know it was really sharp and you know you're used to the Italians traditionally um, being very loose at um, in their defensive system a lot of shooters you expect that not really pillaring up either side of the rook so, uh, and failing the fundamentals I think Brunel did really well last year eliminated a lot of that um, and they introduced both a, a reasonably fast line speed but also an integrity of the line so you didn't see many people breaking it and therefore didn't leave elbows and it was harder to break down I think they've, 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 they've gone backwards this, this year a little bit they see more shooters more guys doing their, their own thing not as being as, as, as structured or as rigid mm. in the system as they should be and also I think that, that looseness in the game that uh, you spoke about that they had some some um, uh, some bonuses with last year. I think it's actually has worked against them this year because their carries are too loose, their passing has been too loose, and that's what allows other teams in the game. Well, is this the game that we should start seeing a bit more offloading from the Irish team? Then a bit, bit more counter attacking. Yeah, I think we've seen little different uh, tactical uh, approaches in, in in our games so far, in our three games so far. But I really expect this weekend, um, considering what we're looking at against France, uh, France the week after, I would see a real focus on our counter attack um, in game and maybe our tur- our playoff turnovers because that's something that Joe's obviously really into. Um, but I think he's building the step by step. But I think over the previous two week uh, two weeks training time. 
Um, the fact that our set piece or defence or discipline are already at a pretty high level, uh, I think the focus would have been on, on counter-attack because I, I would agree with Shane. I think Italy trying to run so much is actually fatiguing them. So when they do kick, when they do kick or exit their 22, the kick chase is really, really poor. And I was at the game in Paris, France, Italy, and it was embarrassing seeing you know the full screen, seeing the match live, how slow their forwards were to gain any kind of kick chase line. So there will be gains there to be had if we, if we go after them. And that's not just Rob Carney or Trimble or, or, or Dave Carney running on their own. It's actually putting us in a situation to hurt them on the next phase. I mean, you know, maybe looking for midfield rooks and, and getting two first receivers and having good shape off that, which Joe did a lot of times with Leinster. But I would expect this because I think that's an area that we can bring to Paris as well because Paris, Pilisson just boots it down the field. Um, they haven't been very good in their exits from, from boxing from a nine. So there will be opportunities against Paris the week after. In Paris, yeah. against I think France. as well, if you... Bernard there mentioned the counter-attack and the counter-attack is going to be a key area but don't just expect the counter-attack to come from a long kick to you know the wingers or, or, or to a corner at full-back. The counter-attack will be on occasion the, the Irish team having to switch their mindset when the ball goes on the ground because the Italians actually, they although they try and play with a bit of ambition, their skill level, as you said, and their fitness, especially in the second half, doesn't allow them to do it. Um, so there will be ball on the ground. They'll try and those offload in the middle of contact when it hits the be- deck. So Ireland have to be able to switch into that mindset of two passes and just pass the man next to you, put pace onto the ball and shift it out. I think you'll get they'll get huge uh, rewards if if they do that. Um, the likely outcome. I, I really think that Ireland could do a pretty big job on Italy. You know, if they if they keep focus, I'm looking at a guy like Ian Henderson that's coming in. I think he's a perfect match for him. He's a guy, big body, big limbs. He'll get on the far side of the tackle and get off off loads. And there will be a keenness to 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 put scores up. What Bernard said was right earlier on. There's a lot of the building blocks have already gone in. So you see the fight on the ground, ball presentation, um, set piece. Uh, mall, all these building blocks are in place and have developed since um, Joe came in. Now there's a little wrinkles that you add to it. We saw some of them against England and I think we'll even see more of a natural play because very often that the, the play that looks most um, m- uh, most wild, that most, looks most unregulated is the stuff that comes from having all the other building blocks perfect. Bernard? Uh, uh, Wayne with all those yeah I think plus 20 to be honest I think, yeah. I think yeah. it's going to be a really good day in the Viva send Brian out on a high and go to go to France on the back of a very very strong performance sounds great listen Bernard Jackman Shane Horgan Brilliant. thanks so much cheers thank you Shane Curran with the kick out the 42 year old goalkeeper Curran it out from goal here he comes he topped it he fought it he's 50 yards out from goal what a day for us coming all the mother niggas lame and you know it now. When the real nigga hold you down, you're supposed to drown. Bam. 1944 is the last time I've seen your tiger come out of here. And the one, 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 be the last one. Bam. What a day for us coming. Leave a pretty girl sad. I have to say, I'm really, really liking those predictions. Mm. You said at the very top of the show, Murph, that we could just relax and saunter on down towards the Aviva on Saturday. And it turns out you're dead right. This is... They were just shy of giving Brian yeah. Driscoll a hat-trick <laughs> on his send-off at the end. There. I think that really the key thing for us to do now is try and get the ball into Brian Driscoll's... Like, forget about the game plan. This is about getting Brian Driscoll the send-off that uh, he deserves. I feel more like... So we by hook or by crook... Surely... Oh, you're completely wrong. I mean, the whole... The, the end of Brian Driscoll's own career is actually going to be against France. Yeah. Assuming he doesn't get injured. Yeah, but it's kind of so, harder to engineer a try for O'Driscoll in Paris. We, we can't yeah. really pick and choose. It's our... not about a try. It's about winning the championship. It's not about distorting the game plan so that 
O'Driscoll gets a try, and Italy oh, but, actually probably end up getting a, a shock uh, win no, in Dublin no, no, in this no, last no, game here. It's about winning that game. game. It's about winning that game because it's not a fitting send-off for a player like Brian O'Driscoll, Brian O'Driscoll like game against Italy. It's, it's, it's not. It's, it's, not the, it's not the right stage. The appropriate stage is the Stade de France. The appropriate stage is next week. A heartbreaking defeat in the Stade de France. <laughs> just, like we've all, just like we always do. Listen, I think, you know, uh, no disrespect to the Italians. <laughs> no, but I, mean, I think there is going to be a lot of disrespect paid to the no, Italian fairness, cousins. We I, need I, to, well, we, 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 we need to just insulate ourselves, is what I'm trying to say here, from, you know, the, basically what we all think is going to happen here, which is a 50-point win for Ireland, because it never, <laughs> ever happens. I We've never, feel, ever delivered on that sort of pressure. I would feel a little bit more like we were setting ourselves up for a fall if Carlo Del Fama didn't sound like he was physically afraid when he was looking at the two team sheets there. It seems like <laughs> pretty well. Yeah. Set up, it's time now for US Murph. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game, no matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. Brian, you've been at Pebble Beach in recent weeks. You've been at spring training in Arizona. Where do we find you now? Are you safely tucked up back at home? In the boring old hamlet of San Francisco, <laughs> California. How about that? When, when, when San Francisco is a letdown, then you know you've been going around to travel. No, it's great to be back home, of course, in the, as they call it, the cool gray city of love. I think somebody called it that way back, some poet way back when. But, uh, yeah, we got uh, our travels are out of the way. No more Super Bowl, no more uh, Pebble Beach, no more baseball. We're waiting for the baseball team to come on home in a couple weeks. On a personal note, and I know you care about my personal travel schedule, I will be headed back to Arizona this weekend with the boys, the lads, as you would call it, uh, for our 20th straight trip of spring training, which means 20 years of very, very accommodating girlfriends and wives. Wags, as they would say, right? So uh, they, they let us go down and act like little... In fact, my wife derisively calls it my little boy's sleepover, is what she calls <laughs> well, it. So, uh, you, but, so you were there working last week, but you're, you're uh, back in San Francisco, and then you're going back basically for a, a, what, what would be termed a bonding session with your old friends next this week. This would be bonding. Incredible. This would be bonding, and this would be beer and sunshine and the crack of the bat. All those romantic stuff I was talking to you about yeah. last week will be fully enjoyed with no media credential around the neck. Yeah, I think I was asking last week, what kind of lunatic goes to these things? Uh, what kind of crazed fan goes and watches it? But apparently you're one of them. But listen, you're, you're in San Francisco. Jim Harbaugh, the esteemed coach of the 49ers, there has been, or there have been rumblings over the last few weeks that he might be on the way out of there. Is that going to happen? Wow, what a scene. I mean, is this guy, this guy, I, I would put this guy up against anybody, any coach in America right now, as far as entertainment, Theater, riveting drama, um, always a talking point. Jim Harbaugh, there's that phrase, moves the needle like few others. Whether he's, uh, you know, wearing the khakis or whether he's darn near fighting the Detroit Lions head coach Jim Schwartz or whether he's dumping his quarterback midseason for Colin Kaepernick or whether he's screaming on the sidelines like his head's going to explode about a call or whether he's singing Johnny Cash, I've been everywhere, man. I mean, this guy, or whether he's winning and winning and winning and winning, which is what he's done everywhere he's gone, especially here in San Francisco, three straight years to at least the NFC Championship. 
and then darn near beating the Seattle Seahawks in one of the great championship games in recent memory, coming down to that last play with Kaepernick and Richard Sherman. So, yeah, he's always compelling, guys, but now comes the next chapter, which is, is Harbaugh going to leave the 49ers? And this first broke... This was not at all on the, on the radar screen. There had been rumblings in the, in, the, in the middle of the season. Some of the writers had written, you know, Harbaugh's three years into his five-year deal. He's winning at a great rate. At some point, uh, guys ask for more money. They say this is kind of a sports tradition in America. You've signed a contract, but it doesn't matter. I'm doing so well. I want you to tear up that contract and give me a new one. So that, that was kind of on the fringes of, of reporting in November and December that, you know, the way Harbaugh's winning, he's probably going to want a new deal. But there was really nothing uh, concrete or definitive. And then what happened was at the NFL Combine last week, ProFootballTalk.com, which is a website that traffics in rumors, sometimes founded, sometimes unfounded, that said they dropped this atom bomb on us, and they said that the Cleveland Browns and San Francisco 49ers had a, quote, trade in place, unquote, to send Jim Harbaugh, the coach, to the Browns for a slew of draft picks, and, but that the trade fell through at the last second when Harbaugh decided to stay. So cue just a tsunami of reaction from all corners of the country. What's going on there? Why would Harbaugh want to leave? Why would the 49ers want to trade this guy? Why did they almost trade him to the Browns? What is going on? And there was speculation and reports. and So any number of things happened. Dominoes started falling all over the place. And the first and most prominent one was that Jim Harbaugh and his general manager, Trent Baalke, and the general manager is the guy who assembles the personnel, for the coach, who of course coaches the personnel, that they not only don't get along, but one report said that they hate each other so much that they don't even speak, that if they're in adjoining rooms, they only send each other emails. Okay, so that was put out there, among other things, and then a very controversial column in the San Francisco paper that said, Jim Harbaugh's act has, quote, worn thin, unquote, with the 49ers players in the locker room. Another reporter around here in San Francisco called him a combustible commodity who revs so hot and competes so hard and butts so many heads that he's just too difficult to work with, and that's why the 49ers would want to trade him. Now, mind, guys, none of this stuff was said by Harbaugh or the 49er owner, Jed York, or their general manager. It was all either A, speculation, or B, unnamed sources. So we went through about a two-and-a-half to three-week period of intense wildfires of, of rumors and speculation and conjecture and what's going on with Harbaugh and why would the 49ers let this guy leave and maybe he's too difficult to get along with and who would you choose, the GM or the coach? And then yesterday, or I should say Monday, pardon me, Monday, he finally picked up the phone and talked to Sports Illustrated to a reporter named Michael Rosenberg, who's a real bright guy, who seems to have Harbaugh's ear. Uh, Harbaugh seems to like him and give him his uh, information. And Harbaugh definitively and comprehensively refuted everything. He says he doesn't want more money. He doesn't want more power. He's, he has zero chance of leaving the 49ers. He loves his job. And not only does he not email Trent Baalke. He actually speaks to him, he says, daily and hourly. So whether that put it to bed or whether that was just a calculated political statement to uh, try to gain some kind of leverage is now the new speculation. But I return to my original theme, guys, that he is among the most riveting personalities in American football today. Brian, I'm really interested in that dynamic between the head coach and the general manager because in Premier League football in recent years, it's started to resemble what's been happening in a lot of European leagues for quite a long time. And that is that 
the essentially the head coach coaches the team and a director of football or a sporting director, whatever they might be called, is the guy who'll actually go out and make the purchases and deliver those players to the manager. Traditionally, it was always in the days of particularly the early Alex Ferguson reign and Brian Clough and all these great managers, they might have a scout or two, but they would be the ones picking the players and deciding what should be paid for them and going and making that happen. In America, is it very much accepted that a head coach is in somewhat of a compromised position, that they have to accept that they might have a bit of input, but largely the, the GM is the guy who actually makes the calls here. Well, that's it. I mean, you've, you've struck upon the, the, the burning hot issue, which is, you know, can a general manager and coach coexist? Or in the case of celebrated guys like Bill Parcells, or Jimmy Johnson of the Cowboys, or to a large degree, Bill Walsh when he was with the 49ers, does a coach have the dual hat of picking his players and coaching his players? And this is a really important issue for NFL teams to be successful at. And it bleeds over into other sports, too. In fact, just a quick digression, in baseball, what part of Billy Bean and the Oakland A's rise to fame is sort of their diminishment of the actual coach of the team thinking, thinking that that is almost a movable and replaceable part and that the more important person is the personnel man. And that's why they kind of instituted their whole anti-old uh, way of thinking and their new way of thinking of we're going to analyze numbers in a new way to find the most efficient players at the best prices and whoever our manager is doesn't really matter. That's a, a great debate. And there's many people who agree with Billy Bean. There's many people who disagree with Billy Bean. And you have now hit on what the 49ers' problem or lack of problem is, and that is, does Trent Baalke and his decisions of who to draft and who to sign, and don't forget, NFL free agency starts this weekend, so here we go again. This is when you decide who you're going to re-sign and who you're going to sign from other teams, and Trent Baalke and Jim Harbaugh have to be on the same page, like any successful team. In fact, a hallmark of a lousy team is a GM and a coach that don't get along and don't see the same way, and the dysfunction spreads rapidly, and they pick the wrong guys, and they fight over guys, and maybe one guy gets a guy who he doesn't want. In fact, the Raiders, for example, years ago, Al Davis, who did so many things right, he's no longer with us, was hell-bent on drafting Jamarcus Russell out of LSU when his coach at the time, Lane Kiffin, who's since had several odd twists in his career, insisted that he not draft Jamarcus Russell. And Al Davis won that war because he's the owner of the team. And Jamarcus Russell turned out to be a huge bust. And Lane Kiffin's career went sideways. And the Raiders have been paying for it ever since. So can you find that symbiosis? Can you find the coach and the GM who get along? Or do you want to be one of these teams that gives the coach both hats? Mike Holmgren of the Green Bay Packers tried to do it. He went from the Green Mike Holmgren won a Super Bowl with Brett Favre in Green Bay, and his GM was a guy named Ron Wolf, and they were considered one of the great one-two combos. They got along. They saw this, the game the same way. They worked great. Whoever Ron Wolf picked, Mike Holmgren coached, and they won. Well, Mike Holmgren left for Seattle. This is what happens now. Guys get successful. They're not happy there. You've got to go somewhere else and do it your own way, right? Holmgren went to Seattle to become the GM and the coach at the same time, and while he did have a modicum of success, he did reach one Super Bowl, he didn't have a consistent brand of success, and moreover, guys, he burnt out. Mm. The dual hat of, of, the, of the GM and the coach can wear on a guy because as sports has evolved now, as shows like yours and mine talk about sports all the time, and sports has become a 365-days-a-year thing, and it didn't used to be, and now when you're a GM and a coach, you are absolutely fried. So the best way, I think has been through the years to find a coach and a GM that work together. And Harbaugh and Balky, you would judge by their wins, 
have been working well together. But the question is, can they work well together going forward? So it is a burning issue, and it's about the philosophy of the owner, Owen. If you take the most successful or certainly the most consistent team over the last 10, 15 years, and it's so hard to be up near the top year after year in the NFL, you're probably looking at the New England Patriots. How do they work? And I can't imagine Bill Belichick just sitting by as some general manager calls all the shots in there. No, in fact, he had a guy who was not nearly as famous as him, but it was a guy named Scott Pioli, who was his, uh, they, they made beautiful music together uh, as, the, as the GM and the coach. And in fact, w- again, what happened? Scott Pioli, once he got famous and they won all those Super Bowls together, he left to go to the Kansas City Chiefs. So Belichick has, uh, they've, they've kind of rotated a few uh, GMs through the years. And right now, actually, his current general manager, a guy named Mike, I think it's Mike, I'm not sure the guy's name is. But it might, is it Mike Holovac? Is that right? No. But know? anyway, the point is, is that, no, that's, that's incorrect. I'm sorry. Um, Scott Pioli, 08, and they don't really have a GM right now. Um, in fact, I'm looking, I just, as I'm talking to you, I'm Googling Belichick. It says head coach slash de facto GM. So when he was with Pioli from 00 to 08, things went great. And when he lost Pioli, think, you know, they haven't won a Super Bowl since. Now, they've been winners. So Belichick is one of those examples of those guys who kind of does do both. He does have that crazed work ethic to, uh, to be able to kind of do both. And, again, you've you got to sacrifice a lot of things in your life if you're going to do both. Jim Harbaugh has said he does not want to have both. He, does not, he says he wants Trent Baalke to be the GM. He only wants to be the coach. So it is a, it is a, it's a prickly situation. It is really tender, and it's really, you know, um, you know guys who, who can kind of piece it together and keep it together are, are the ones who are successful. And Pioli and Belichick were the, were the sort of uh, model twosome of the OOs. If I think back on, on the past when Bill Walsh, who I always fall back on because he was such a great guy here, he had a guy named John McVeigh who was not nearly as famous as Bill Walsh, and Walsh kind of had say over him, but he did have a guy. So you've got to have a guy, you've got to have a connection. And again, it's so funny because to, to hear reports of friction between Harbaugh and Balky is, is one thing, and then you look on the field, and they're 36-11 and 11 in their last you know, three regular seasons, and that's one of the best records. So do you judge a team by the product on the field, or do you judge a team by how they are in the front office? And we've had any number of callers and listeners who say, Jed York, the owner of the 49ers, is, he has one job, and that job is to win. And, it, and it's not about you know, having a harmonious water cooler in the, in the second floor of your building or having a great Christmas party you know, or having everybody remember birthdays or whatever. It's about Harbaugh, as Mike Rosenberger, Sports Illustrated, told us, sort of enjoys a creative tension. He thinks it keeps people on their edge. And while that might burn out some people, Harbaugh is totally happy with it. So he says he wants to continue with his creative tension, and it's up to the 49ers to decide if they can handle it. Has the owner said anything? What, what is the owner's stru- ownership structure like there in San Francisco? It's a great question. We've talked about this on the air. We've kind of been looking for the owner, Jed York, who's the nephew of Eddie DeBartolo, the legendary owner. And you want to talk creative tension. When Walsh and the 49ers were winning all those Super Bowls, Eddie DeBartolo was a lunatic. The reports are that he used to fire Walsh five, six times a year. And then the next morning come in and say, I'm sorry, I lost my temper. You're, you know, I didn't mean it. You know? So, I mean, <laughs> creative tension when you're getting screamed at and fired after losses by your whacked-out owner. And that's what people loved about Eddie D. Was all he cared about was winning. And his nephew is now the owner, Jed York. And Jed it gets credit because of two things. One, 
He hired Harbaugh when Harbaugh was the hottest coach in the country coming out of Stanford. He landed him. Miami wanted him. Denver wanted him. University of Michigan wanted him. USC wanted him. Texas wanted him. But Jed got him. So Jed gets credit for that. And Jed also built this new stadium that's a billion-dollar Levi's Stadium that's opening up in the fall. That's going to be the 49ers' new home. So he gets credit for that. But he's been absent. Oh, and he hasn't said a word in the last two weeks, and we've actually kind of called him out on the radio saying this is showing some weak leadership because he could have put out some fires real early on by talking. And that's what kind of gets back to the third leg of the, of the Holy Trinity. We've talked coaches. We've talked GMs. Well, you've got to talk owners, too. Can the owner be good? I mean, look at the Cowboys with Jerry Jones now. After he had Jimmy jo- since he fired Jimmy Johnson in a fit of ego, he hasn't won anything. And that's an owner who just kind of stuck his nose where it didn't belong and thought he could do what he couldn't do. The Cleveland Browns are owned by a guy named Jimmy Haslam, who's now roundly being seen as the biggest buffoon in the league. He fired his coach after one year and then just fired his GM now, Mike Lombardi, too, in the offseason. So it's like, dude, you, what are you kidding? You, you, you're not even giving guys a chance to get their seat warm. So the owner's leadership and philosophy, and that's where we go back to what you said about the Patriots, Robert Kraft kind of took that Eddie DeBartolo model and is letting Belichick and Pioli and those guys do their thing without being a disruptive influence. Another example of a bad owner would be Dan Snyder, uh, the Washington Redskins, who's just viewed as a total joke. He's had, what, about 11 coaches in the last six seasons. I'm exaggerating. But it's about leadership and strength from your ownership. And so far, Jed York has come up short on the Harbaugh situation. Brian, thank you so much. Take care. All the best. Yeah, interesting uh, talking about Jim Harbaugh, actually, because I saw something during the week. He was giving a pep talk to the Kansas Jayhawks, uh, which is a college basketball team. Mm-hmm. And so there he was. To, and I was looking at it kind of going, oh, yeah, there's, that's definitely Jim Harbaugh. Right? And I was kind of trying to figure out what exactly it was that made me so sure that it was Jim Harbaugh. And it turns out he dresses exactly the same way. Yeah, I saw this on Deadspin. They, yeah. Jim Harbaugh has a, seems to feel that what he wears for the San Francisco 49ers is a uniform, which yeah. he must wear everywhere It's else. not clothes as such, you know. Um, and, you know, a lot of very busy people do this, apparently. You know, that they basically decide at a certain stage in their lives when work is just so all-consuming for them. I, I, actually, this is just brain power I can't afford to be wasting. You know, deciding what clothes I'm going to so put So he wears on. a pair of khaki pants what they be called yeah and see he, we got into loads of bother about these as well because uh, it became known during the course of the last NFL season that he pays $8 for these pair of khaki trousers that he has uh, from Walmart and the man is you know as we've just heard perhaps about to become the best paid NFL manager well I like his is. attitude I must say I like his attitude not everybody has to be you know strutting and preening themselves like a My Little Pony on the sideline mm. You know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with a man wearing a pair of. He pays what he need, what he has to pay to get his, to get trousers. Yeah, I mean, I think what people are saying is eight dollars. There all there are alternatives. Are you I mean, saying? Are you saying you'd have more respect for him if he was there in a pair of five hundred dollar designer jeans? No, 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 I'm not saying anything of respect or otherwise. Like a lot of there are a lot of managers out there who are wearing you know team uniforms, team attire, which obviously costs them nothing. They're not paying anything for that. So the fact that he's gone out and bought a pair of trousers, what were you telling me about Jim Harbaugh earlier on? Well, what's his big thing at the moment? In the that he's it's it's a power grab. Yeah, he needs he wants more responsibility. Yeah, he's a busy man, an already busy man who needs who wants to have more responsibility heaped on his plate. Yeah. Now you know what? There's one thing that he really doesn't want to have to take responsibility for the color of his trousers, choosing what clothes to wear yeah. every day in the morning. It's that's just one. That's just 
you know, uh, a couple of minutes that he can spend more productively. Arguing or not with his general ways. <laughs> Yeah. And I think his little uniform looks good. I, I mean, I think all American... Uh, I mean, it seems to me that khaki pants generally are a bit of a uniform in America. Yeah? Absolutely. Uh, khaki pants, I mean, in, in a, you know, you wouldn't get away, get away with them in a more, in the more high powered corporate or political setting, but you know, in which setting everybody's going to wear a blue shirt. That's, that's taken for granted. It's always blue. There's never any other kind. Well, in business meetings, high powered business meetings. Yeah. Politics, especially. I mean, look, I watched House of Cards. Everybody (laughs) in it wears a blue shirt at all times. Spoiler alert. (laughs) You haven't seen it, Ken. Jesus. We're just about to wrap things up. I do. We were talking on the show earlier this week, in fact, about the challenges facing the Kerry footballers this year and with all the retirements and injuries they've suffered and all, all of the challenges there. Keith Duggan sits down with their manager, Eamon Fitzmaurice, for the Irish Times this Saturday. So make sure to have a read of that, along with all the Six Nations build-up in the paper. We're back on TV next week to kick off Series 2 of Second Captains Live. We're looking forward to that. If you're interested in heading along, just email live at secondcaptains.com before midday tomorrow. That's midday on Friday. Live at secondcaptains.com. If you check out Twitter at secondcaptains, we'll give you more details on the start times and all the rest of it. But in the meantime, have a listen to the start of, or to the first show we put out today, which was Second Captains Football featuring Emmett Malone and Brian Kerr on the aftermath of Ireland's defeat to Serbia and whether there was indeed a bubble and if that bubble was burst. I think that's just about it from us. Thank you very much, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Thanks, Kieran. Ken. Thank you, Owen. And thanks for listening. Take care. What is that? It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys.